New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Alex Marthews. He is a researcher on surveillance and privacy issues and is the national chair of Restore the Fourth, a Fourth Amendment civil liberties group. We'll be discussing a paper he co-wrote with Catherine Tucka, the Sloan Distinguished Professor of Management Science and Professor of Marketing at MIT Sloan School of Management. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Over the first half of the year, I've conducted one interview a month with someone who has written about blockchain, cryptocurrency, NFTs, what they are, how they get their value, some of the problems they might solve. So I'm very glad to close out the series by speaking with you about what blockchain does well, what that means it doesn't do so well, and then what all of that means for its application and some things that marketers and everyone really should be thinking about. First things first, you start your article with the two characteristics of blockchain that represent solutions. They're innovative solutions, if you will, to the existing way of doing business. Can you describe what those two things are? So two main characteristics that we felt were genuinely innovative and important with regard to blockchain technology. The first is that it's presents a set of shared data. There are, at least in the case of cryptocurrencies, which are often the most well-developed use case for blockchain, there are digital ledger entries that form an immutable audit trail of all unspent balances and past transactions in the digital asset. The second innovative element is that there is an incentive system. These are what are often referred to as the consensus rules that are designed to ensure that this shared data can be updated and maintained in a way that always reflects the truth or in a way which is functionally equivalent to that, making it extremely costly and difficult to propagate false information within the system. Right. Now, the shared data is intrinsically linked with that immutable audit trail, right? And that's why it represents truth. If I just want to really be redundant and hammer on that, though, that that immutableness is a pretty critical component, correct? Yes, because if you have a ledger of on-blockchain information that is shared between thousands of computers at the same time, then you cannot have it be the case that that blockchain then goes into those thousands of individual computers retroactively, Mm -hmm. modifies that ledger. So the the immutability is key to the relative efficiency of the system. Right. Otherwise, you have all sorts of horrible reconciliation errors and the whole issue of truth becomes problematic. So if these are solutions on offer from blockchain, is this how people should be assessing potential applications of the technology? Yes, it's important to be conscious of the advantages as well as the limitations of that immutability as a concept. So what you should be looking for is situations where 
there is at present, without blockchain in your system, a lack of trust existing among the participants that generate the data. If there is currently that lack of trust, then adding immutability to the system is going to be a fix to that particular problem that you're facing. We have seen that blockchain can be successfully used, for example, to deal with inventory systems and trying to iron out some of the problems of things going astray within supply chains. And that can be very useful in situations where it is hard to have eyes on what is being inventoried and tracked. I'm dating myself, but when people first started using computers, there was a thing that people would say, and that was garbage in, garbage out, and the computer was a tool. And it was only as good as its inputs. And in the paper, you point out that blockchain isn't immune to this issue. And you describe a scenario around handbags. And and can you describe that? Yes. So what we were examining here is a situation where you have goods where the individual items are valuable and important to track. So, for example, luxury branded handbags. It is crucial for any seller of those handbags to be able to track the precise number of those handbags in any one particular store as part of their inventory system. Then customers will have access to the right handbags at the right time, and it protects against the risk of theft by employees or customers. And so it seems like a great use of blockchain technology to store the records that contain the handbag's current location in a way that makes those data points immutable and verifiable. However, we run immediately into what is always going to be there to some extent, which is the last mile problem. The fact that you are still going to have to depend on trusted human intermediaries to effectively bridge the last mile between the physical item and the digital record. In this example, the intervention of the human comes where humans have to correctly and honestly implement the match between the number of handbags that appears on the record and the number that are actually there in the store. Hmm. So what if you are verifying the handbag's presence by a tag that is attached to the handbag. And what then, if you have an employee who is dishonest and attaches a real tag to a fake handbag or attaches a real tag to something else entirely or fakes a tag that simulates being a real tag. Mm. Even if the humans in the equation are reasonably trustworthy, then the the seller of the handbag still has to dynamically and constantly verify whether the actual number of handbags matches the number that is shown in the digital data. And so even in a blockchain system, you're not going to eliminate the need for human re-verification. And so it's still going to come down to a question of the cost of investing in the blockchain system up, up front, and then whether the additional costs of human re-verification are going to be reduced enough to make it worthwhile to make that investment. 
Well, and what was interesting is you then drew a parallel with with marketing and ad fraud, which is one of the things that people have said, this is going to be great. We will, you know, there's a lot of, we don't know where the ad is showing up. We don't know if it's really viewed, but some of the problems, this last mile problem, you see them still happening with these potential marketing solutions. Could you describe why? So there is an interesting discussion to be had about ad fraud here. The advertiser might think that they are paying to show an ad for charter jets, for example, to somebody who is in the market for charter jets, but the ad might actually be shown to an individual who more usually travels on a budget airline. When you're advertising online and you're paying for an ad, you're implicitly relying on the accuracy of the segments that you're advertising to. But Mm -hmm. the people who are developing those segments have an incentive to overstate the accuracy of their segmentation. And so they may present to the advertiser, this is the set of customers or potential customers who are in the market for charter jets, but the advertiser doesn't necessarily know how much that is admixed with people who are not really interested in charter jets and not really in the market for that. And so there is a lot of trust in the system that the segments that you are advertising to are real. And there is also the possibility that the ad that you are putting out there might end up being viewed by a bot, by might end up in a click farm rather than with real potential customers. So then you imagine what happens if to solve this, you put that system onto a blockchain and then you have records of those advertising transactions between parties that are between parties that are not necessarily trustworthy. And the only element that you have there that is trustlessly frictionless is verification that the transaction in question did actually occur at a given time between these parties that specified. But that doesn't get to the nub of the click fraud problem. Right. Because I suppose it's trust, but it's a very limited and prescribed element of trust. It's only the thing within the blockchain. So yes, this transaction happened, but if the person you're dealing with is untrustworthy, meh, it may not be true. I mean, like it, they, it may not have been executed as promised. Is that? Exactly. So that whole element of verifying what's actually behind the digital identifiers is still going to require offline verification. And in writing this, we perceived that there was a risk of people going for blockchain solutions because they felt that it would deal with the trust problem overall, when in reality, you're dealing with a small slice of the trust problem, and it doesn't negate the need for ongoing business relationships, ongoing building of trust between advertiser and client. Well, what's interesting is it is absolutely in previous discussions I've had one of the things that people are thinking this could be exciting. Although it 
does also remind me when I first heard about the blockchain, I think it was 2015, and it was introduced to me in this very idealistic way. It was going to be Internet 2.0, and it was presented in a way that everyone could control their own everything from voting to healthcare to marketing. And we would all, you know, it was this brave new world. It was a little untethered or it felt a little untethered and it was hard to get my arms around what exactly it was. And even when people are talking about the fraud piece, it seems like they back up because of this trust issue that you're talking about in that it's not only going to be blockchain, but the whole system needs to be re-engineered that rather than that, the, the part of the benefit is disintermediation. So you're not going to be, you as a marketer are not going to be selling to going through an agent. You will be going directly to this pie in the sky, you know, direct to the people who have hand raised and said that they are interested in marketing and they have shared all of their personal details. And so the question is, is it a tech structure issue? The reality of whether or not you really end up disintermediating things? I don't know. If I think that there are things, I think there are things that can be disintermediated in this context. And I think that there are really creative and smart people who are operating in the blockchain space and trying in good faith to deal with some of the problems of identity and verification. Mm. We talk a little bit in the paper about efforts to enable each party in a transaction to verify to each other not everything about them being who they say they are. You don't want all of your identifying information to be on the blockchain, but merely to verify to one another that they have particular information without even revealing what that information is. And so there can be merits to blockchain solutions, especially if they are thinking about what needs to be verified in a precise and granular fashion. Right. And what's interesting there where I get hung up is who then is incented to build it? Who puts it together for everyone to use? Because all of those intermediaries, they make their money through being intermediaries. And are they going to build the thing that will then make them irrelevant unless they can somehow get a piece of it, unless there's some incremental income and then it scales with volume or something? I'm not sure how. Well, I sometimes think that there can be in blockchain circles an element of artistry to this, Mm. that there are people who take pride in devising privacy-elegant solutions to blockchain problems who are not necessarily there to directly make money out of that solution, but instead monetize the reputation that they may make within the blockchain environment by having designed such a solution. That's interesting. The next thing you write about in your paper is privacy. And I've got to tell you, this was what really struck a chord with me and and got me thinking. When it goes to that immutable audit trail, can you walk us through, you sort of evolve the explanation in the paper and can can you share that with listeners? Sure. One of the challenges for looking at the economics of privacy 
is how you establish property rights over data. Who owns what data? You can't easily determine the benefits or costs from changes to people's levels of privacy if you can't readily identify who owns the data concerned. And so there have been people who have made arguments that blockchain will be useful in terms of assigning clearly who data belongs to. However, when you're thinking about marketing applications, it has more complicated privacy implications if the data that they expose on the blockchain is no longer disposable as it would be readily in non-blockchain digital marketing environments. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to say here is, and let's bring it prosaic again, we've talked about handbags, let's talk about shoes. In general, in marketing communications, you're using data to target somebody to increase their intent of purchasing something. As a result, the usefulness of that data is ephemeral. It's temporary. I may be interested in buying a pair of shoes in the morning. I may not be interested in the afternoon. I may have bought a pair of shoes at noon and all of the browsing data for me browsing for shoes in the morning is going to be completely irrelevant by the afternoon. Right. To a marketer, once they've acquired or attracted the t customer, the data that leads up to that acquisition is really of limited usefulness, of short-term usefulness. And we get a little bit tricked in looking at the, these systems because we look at firms and see how long they tend to retain data for. And most firms retain this kind of data for longer than six hours. But that's not a function of the data actually continuing to be useful to the firm in marketing terms. It's more a measure of the fact that it is costly to identify which data should be deleted and which should not be deleted. And that is skilled work. It takes professionals to look at that and to figure it out. And you may get it wrong. And for many firms, it's often going to be simpler to pay the pretty small cost of continuing to retain all of the data over investing in somebody to delve into the data and figure out which of the data is still valuable to retain. Right. One thing that you can do about that is that many firms have automatic customer data retention limits, right? Older than six months, older than a year. And those are useful for precisely this reason, that you don't, as a firm, have to go in and think about what you're going to keep and what you're going to lose. Now, we come back to blockchain, and we talked about one of the values that they provide as being making data immutable and permanent. If you do that, then... Maybe if people know what I was thinking about in terms of buying shoes 10 years ago, then that probably is not something I'm going to care about a lot in terms of people knowing in 2023. I had fabulous taste in shoes 10 years ago. <laughs> I have fabulous taste now. And that's not going to have changed. It's not going to embarrass anybody. Except you have a big sort of asterisk. It, yes. And I do a lot of work on questions of data and surveillance and law enforcement. And there is a lot of that kind of data that comes in. There are a lot of kinds of data that we have all put up 
online in one form or another that are a lot less innocuous than the tastes in shoes that I had 10 years ago. And here's the key point. We don't even necessarily know whether the, the data that we're putting up there is innocuous or not, or whether it's going to be able to be used to make inferences about us in five years time or 10 years time. And well, that is the real, there's a section in the paper and I couldn't, I had to read it twice because I just couldn't believe it, where it talks about seemingly innocuous things based on Facebook likes. And I'm just going to read this quote because it's crazy. The best predictors of high intelligence include, quote, thunderstorms, the Colbert Report, science, and curly fries. Whereas low intelligence was indicated by Sephora, I love being a mom, Harley Davidson, and Lady Antebellum. Now, that was like, okay, curly fries, really? Curly fries? We don't know. You know, in many ways, we have all this data about us. It's all out there, but we have a sense of safety because of the needle in the haystack problem. There's so much of it. And who's going to connect the dots? Nobody. Nobody's going to connect the dots, except Except we now have (laughs) systems. We now have companies. We now have software that is a great deal better than systems were 10 years ago when the paper came out that was identifying those Facebook likes. Right now it'd be even more detailed and strange. Yeah. And it could be curly fries. It literally could be anything that would convey to a third party firm that you are of high intelligence or low intelligence. And that's really annoying. It makes you feel like you can't even, it's not even safe to express very ordinary kind of preferences for fear of what people may be able to infer about you and then to package that profile into a particular segment and market to you on that basis. We'd well, like and that's and that's just opinion. thinking in the terms of marketing. I mean, yeah. you know, if you think about bad actors and repressive regimes, if if your trailing history reveals that actually you're subversive, we know that people who eat at certain restaurants and buy certain types of shoes and do this weird fingerprint of things highly correlates with something we don't like. That's a little frightening. Think about the House Un-American Activities Committee during the Red Scare. Right. They liked to haul up people in front of their committee and to ask you, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Now we have a situation where repressive regimes or or malicious actors could take your online behavior from a decade before or two decades before and say, are you or have you ever been a liker of curly fries? And they wouldn't even need you to affirm it in the present day if they had data accessible to them from 10 years or 20 years ago that you had, in fact, been a lover of curly fries. Right. And so this becomes the intersection of AI's evolution and speed of computing with blockchain where nothing goes away. In some ways, it's the fact that eventually, at least right now, stuff gets deleted. So the issue, it sounded like, and correct me if I'm wrong, with blockchain is that it doesn't get deleted. Could it get deleted? You know, yes, it's immutable, but only for 
for six months and then it is destroyed, never to be seen again. Is there a solution or is it mutable? And hopefully there won't be some strange correlation that comes out in the future that yeah, people may manipulate. One thing we don't go into in the paper is the distinction between technical and functional constraints oh, on the okay. existence of this data. From a technical standpoint, blockchain systems are set up to be immutable. From a functional standpoint, in the long run, there is technological change in computing and physical computers get thrown away and hard drives get overwritten on mm. a decadal timescale. It's something that has not really come up much in a blockchain context because blockchain has not been around for that long. Right. But we can envision situations where we think about the use of microfilm as a technology for digital preservation, which was very popular in the 1950s through the 1970s. Right. And Nowadays, yes, you can physically go and access microfilm archives still. That information still exists, but it is much less accessible than it might once have been. And it is a rare college student who will go and actually look at a microfilm archive to research a paper. So it is fair to say that we don't know how technology and how data storage is going to evolve over a decadal timescale. Mm. And something that is intended and designed to be permanent now may end up not practically being accessible in 30 or 40 years' time. What we can say is that the intent of the people building the technical constraints into the system right now is for it to be immutable and permanently accessible in some form. And that because this information is replicated over thousands of computers at a time, you would only have to reaccess that information from one computer out of those thousands in a few decades time. Right. Well, it's just fascinating to game things out and think about where things could go. And I go on a digression. Sure. I'm a fan of the show Doctor Who. And there is a very old episode which shows the human race trying to preserve the records of their civilization. They send this ark up into space and the doctor, the time traveler, arrives on that ark and finds those records of the human race stored in microfilm. And they're stored in microfilm because the makers of this TV show are writing in the 1970s. And they were like, well, of course, if we were creating a spaceship now, this is exactly how we preserve the information. And of course, we look at that now, 50 years later, and we laugh and we go, of course, they're not going to store it on microfilm. Right. It's also interesting where fiction does predict future. You have Blade Runner and the video billboards. And yes, we have video billboards now. Nobody is thrilled. <laughs> No, nobody is. We love to be marketed all the time. I think what's interesting is the issue of who owns the data. And one of the issues around, let's say, generative AI is the issue of how do we pay people who we've trained all our models off of? We don't know who owns all that content. Well, actually, if we were on, if we had the blockchain, we could have known who the IP belonged to and we could have contacted them and gotten permission or done whatever we needed to do. So 
from an IP connecting the IP to the owner, there's something interesting there that that could be locked to you forever. But this other it stuff, could, but it's still going to depend on consent, right? Right. In a sense that mechanism is a fantasy mechanism. Because in order for somebody to make themselves contactable for the use of their IP, they have to be willing to make their intellectual property usable in IP terms. And there are going to be a lot of makers of intellectual property and artistic content who aren't going to want to do that. Yeah, right. So I guess the last question is, given these challenges, these problems, how are you feeling about blockchain meets marketing and what it can do well? Silence, crickets, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And that's fine if that's where you land. I I think think that's actually really interesting. I think that the argument that we make in the paper is that you should be thinking of blockchain as a useful tool in contexts where there are no deep real-world implications that are foreseeable from existing privacy laws or from firm or law enforcement review of those transactions a decade later. And an example that we give is maintaining a record of purchases of digital ads. This is something that is important in political advertising. Facebook maintains a register of political ads that are purchased over its platform, and they are required to maintain that register for the purposes of political transparency and knowing what who has purchased that ad can be an ongoing political issue for which preservation of those ads permanently is important. I think that it is hard for most firms to clear the threshold of saying, we need to convert our systems over to blockchain without thoroughly considering the privacy and persistence and immutability issues. And considering those issues can sometimes be expensive in itself. Right. It might be a better strategy in context where blockchain is a fashionable investment to do as some firms in, to do as some firms did, and simply add blockchain to the list of the things that they do in order to improve their stock market price without actually shifting over their entire uh, business model to a blockchain-based model. Right. Contract management, fine. But then the back end of it, maybe maybe not. Context, you could say, is do it for the boring. This is not something for the, the flashy solutions. This is not something which, as a firm, is going to enable you to easily participate in the creation of a whole dematerialized nation and economy. Right. This is something that's really good for inventory solutions. Right. It's good for the boring, safe for the boring. It's a great way to think about it. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.